and welcome to Sleep Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of Sleep and New York Times and places like that. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. We are going to talk about The Insider, which is one of the best films from the best year for cinema in basically our entire lives. 1999, the Annus Maribilis of movie years. And to talk about it, all longtime Slate Money listeners will be overjoyed by this one. We have the OG Slate Money co-host back for the first time in some time, Jordan Weissman. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, we are excited <laughs> to have you. Um, tell tell the folks like because you're not even at Slate anymore. What's what's your life like these days? What's um, <laughs> your life? It, it, yeah, it's uh, the grind of editing copy about Congress. No, so uh, these days I am the Washington editor at uh, Semaphore, um, which is a news startup that's been going for almost exactly one year now. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't heard about it, our editor in chief is Ben Smith, formerly of BuzzFeed and the New York Times. And um, yeah, I mean, these days I just have been driving myself crazy um, watching Congress meltdown in cycles of uh, retribution. Rather you than me. <laughs> yeah, um, that sounds like a terrible one job. You, you had yep. much more fun when you were co-hosting Slate Money. I don't know what you were thinking. But in any <laughs> case, uh, let's put all thoughts of American politics out of our mind, at least insofar as they're not relevant to this movie. And let's talk about movies. Jordan, is this a, is The Insider a political movie? Uh, to some extent, yeah. I think the context for it is certainly very political because it's about, you know, the one of the key whistleblowers who revealed the, uh, you know, dark secrets of big tobacco, and Jeffrey Wigand, and... You know, he was he was offering up his revelations at a time where there was this big push by the federal government to finally regulate this industry. Um, and some of that kind of makes it into the movie. Obviously, it starts with a congressional hearing, which kind of gives you a hint of what's going on. But it, it was, you know, even broader than uh, what what's depicted in the film. So, yeah, the, the background of this is like big tobacco was you know, a huge target for Washington in the 90s. And I think that's part of what kind of colors all of the events of the film and, and the, the conflict that unfolds. So, yeah, it's political. I mean, it, I, I want to I just um, give Michael Mann a little bit of credit here. Uh, Michael <laughs> Mann being, being this famously sort of um, visual and masculine film director who makes very long films about men. Um often including guns. I feel like this, you know, I feel like there's even a couple of guns in this one. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, to give him a little bit of credit here, he does not actually start this movie with a congressional hearing in 1994. He starts this movie with Al Pacino with a bag over his head being driven at high speed through the streets of Lebanon trying to meet some Ayatollah. So there's a little bit of action, even if it's... Even if it's um, got very little to do with the plot. The idea is to just show us what a badass um, Lowell Bergman and Mike Wallace are. Um, I guess they need some introduction since this was all back in the 20th century and we have people who don't watch TV anymore. Um, 
Elizabeth is the pop culture person. Who are Lau Bergman and Mike Wallace? Uh, Mike Wallace was a journalist on 60 Minutes, and Lil Bergman was a producer, which means that he was responsible for doing things like uh, finding sources and setting up interviews and uh, all the sort of behind-the-scenes things that you need to do in order to get a good broadcast interview. And and the point here, which will be kind of astonishing to 2023 listeners, um, and it's made in the movie kind of en passant, is that back then, and we're talking in the mid-90s, 60 Minutes was a major cultural force. Not only did it get absolutely blockbuster ratings, it would come out in, in prime time. I think most people know it's a it's a big sort of news magazine show. But on top of all that, it was one of, if not the most profitable TV shows in the entire CBS lineup. This was for-profit news making absolute gobs of money. And you kind of see the gobs of money floating around in the background of this movie as Lyle Bergman travels around from exotic location to exotic location for no particular reason except for he has a CBS expense account and he can do whatever the hell he likes because money is no object. And this was, you know, kind of the last gasp of the time when news in general and TV news in particular just had enormous cultural impact and political impact. And it made a really big difference to the politics of the day, you know, whether some tobacco whistleblower was shown on the telly saying something or not. Yeah, there's a great moment in the movie that, like, <laughs> as as an editor who occasionally has to think about uh, travel expenses, um, made me wistful for a time I never, nostalgic for a time I never <laughs> got to personally experience, where Lowell Bergman basically flies to Kentucky from New York just to have a 30-second confrontation with Jeffrey Wigand, his source, just to like say one mm-hmm. thing to him in person. And that's it. Like that's that's what the flight and like the hotel were paying for. Just like to to have a conversation eye to eye instead of on the phone. And to me, it's just like, yeah, I guess maybe that was maybe that happened in real life. I don't know if it really did, but like you could imagine back then. I, I did read a, an article yeah. that Emily sent around about like the making of mm-hmm. and there was this one point at which um they the the filmmakers are talking to Lau Bergman and they're like really do you, is is the only thing you do just talking on the phone um <laughs> there, there is this problem with any film yeah. about journalism that the vast majority of stuff that journalism involves is people talking on the phone and god knows there's a lot of talking on the phone in this but clearly they also made the decision to fly Lowell Bergman around to a bunch of exotic locations, mostly for the sake of just having visuals and not having yet another scene of him talking on the phone. Yeah, there's also, there, there are just aspects of journalism that are difficult to dramatize. So there are scenes where, you know, uh, Bergman goes to meet a Wall Street Journal reporter to just have a five-second conversation. And so they drive to some obscure spot under a bridge in the dark, and it it's like a like a drug handoff or something. Why were they under the bridge? I didn't understand that at all. Whereas in real life, this would be somebody texting a colleague. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> For what seems like it should be a relatively simple plot, you know, of like, there's a whistleblower. And the question is, does he blow the whistle or not? Um, it does get incredibly convoluted and somehow the Unabomber winds up getting involved. But like, the, <laughs> um, but at some point in the plot, 
Brown and Williamson, the tobacco company, decides they're going to do a sort of oppo dump on Jeffrey Wigand. They do this oppo dump onto the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal, according to the movie, and I'm not sure I entirely believe this, is about to go to press by just, you know, like printing this oppo dump on Jeffrey Wigand and saying he's a terrible person who something, something, ex-wife, something. It's all very unclear. And then Lowell Bergman, our heroic hero, played by Al Pacino, you know, talks to the editor involved in this story and says, give me 48 hours and I'm going to show you that all of this oppo dump is false. And the editor goes like, I don't know. This oppo dump seems like it's newsworthy to me. And um, and then and then Al Pacino spends 48 hours running around trying to debunk the oppo dump and then hands over his debunking of the oppo dump, as, as Elizabeth says, like on an overpass somewhere in the middle of nowhere in the in a sort of manila envelope. And then this changes the course of Wall Street Journal reporting. And the next thing you know, the, the Wall Street Journal decides to run with, like, Brown and Williamson is attempting character assassination rather than Jeffrey Wigand is a terrible human. Um, this whole subplot um, is one of the reasons why the film is two and a half hours long. And it's, I, I feel like it really could have been cut. No, I think uh, no, it's... No, I loved it's, it. The subplot is the point... It, it's not just a movie about Jeffrey Wigand is a former big tobacco executive that blew the whistle on big tobacco. It's also, it's it's about how companies compromise the people that work for them, right? I mean, so big tobacco compromised Jeffrey Wigand, obviously, trying to shut him up about he just wanted to make a safer cigarette. And they were like, you can't make a safer cigarette because then everyone would know cigarettes are unsafe. I don't even know? think he but wanted to make a safer cigarette. I think he just wanted to the cigarettes to not get more addictive. Sure. No, 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 it was, it was, it was safer. Like that was, if you go back and read the original, also the story, like that was in fact the project he was brought yes. on right, to, right. to do. And, yeah. and so, and then 60 Minutes wants to run a show, you know, revealing all of this, but it's, it's corporate interests aren't aligned there. And, and the, everyone except Lowell Bergman played by Al Pacino, who I guess is the most righteous man in the movie or something in the movie of men. Um, <laughs> there are so many every, men in this movie. Everyone, all the other men are sort of compromised by this, right? Mike Wallace, who's supposed to be, I mean, back in his day, he was like a Walter Cronkite kind of figure. You know, everyone thought he was very upstanding and journalist and out for the truth, I guess. Um, you know, he's compromised by CBS's sort of cowardice, basically. And that was like a whole other story. I thought that was really interesting. That story is is the whole second half of the movie, right? Well, yeah. well, the first half of the movie is, will Wigand go public with what he knows about Brown and Williamson? Eventually he does in the courtroom. And then you're like, oh, wow, like he's gone public. And then you think the movie yeah, is like, about That's to end. Then. And then you're like, oh, no, we're only an hour and a half in. We've got, still got another hour of like, will we'll, um, CBS air this? And which, that's really so, important. Because which is important, like, and that bit, and that bit is important. Like, and I don't begrudge Michael Mann that whole bit about CBS and its takeover, and you know, um, tortious interference. Which I really want to talk about tortious interference because yeah. it's a it's a big thing. Um, Wait, but Felix, like, would you believe that I prepared for this podcast by reading a bunch of like law review articles about non disclosure agreements and confidentiality? And I, I, I totally, I, I am very happy, and I, I want to talk to you about. But before we get into tortious interference, which is one of my yeah. favorite subjects, 
Um, I just want to just close the loop on the whole Wall Street Journal subplot thing. Yeah. Because I feel like the Wall Street Journal comes out very badly from this. It's this kind of very credulous institution that needs the heroic Lyle Bergman to make it realize that um, a character assassination is a character assassination. And is that is that fair? I didn't really think they came off that badly. So I, I thought that they're... was just, you know, dramatization for the movie purposes. Like, I can't imagine that they would have just run a dossier without checking pieces of it out anyway, whether Bergman suggested they do it or not. Right. And, and also, like, the one thing we can definitely say is that they do not need to meet in a deserted overpass to hand over a manila envelope in secret. <laughs> like, you know, like he can just walk through the front door and hand it over. Like there's nothing um, ethically dubious about giving information. About, well, I mean, you know, this, the Lowell Bergman character, he, I think, wants to keep it secret from CBS what he's doing, which is, you know, helping get Wigan's story told because CB CBS wouldn't tell it. So Pacino's like, or the Lowell Bergman character is essentially airing the dirty laundry of his workplace. Well, he's airing the dirty laundry to the New York Times. That comes later. He's but not even, airing it to the journal. I don't know. I mean, what he's doing is instead of, because I was like, if he knows that all that, because it's the oppo research that led CBS in part to say, we're not going to air this interview with this guy. And instead of like having CBS do the reporting, that the Wall Street Journal winds up doing to undercut the Apo research, Lowell Bergman goes outside, you know, the cone, and he goes to the Wall Street Journal and says, "You do it." CBS could have done that themselves. Okay, so this is where I want to bring in um, Jordan with his expertise from reading law review articles, <laughs> because for my, for like at least my reading of the film, and Jordan, tell me if I'm wrong about this. In the movie, the, re the the stated reason from Gina Gershon, the you know very sleek corporate lawyer, um, whoever owns CBS at the time, was it Westinghouse? Um, she her her reason why CBS shouldn't um, air the interview is not because of anything in the Oppo dossier, so much as it's this idea of tortious interference, which is that. CBS could get sued if he if if it aired this interview for tortious interference and tortious interference is the thing which you do when you go up to someone who has a non-disclosure agreement as a journalist and you say to them I'm a journalist please break your non-disclosure agreement and give me the information that you know um and what you're doing there is you're basically encouraging someone to violate that agreement to kind of break the law and that encouragement is itself illegal and actionable and a tort that, um, you know, Brown Williamson could then sue CBS for billions of dollars for, for doing something illegal. If I got that right? There are two legal issues that kind of drive a lot of the drama in the film. The first is just this core problem that Jeffrey Wigand has, which is that he leaves his job at this tobacco company, he's fired, and he signs a confidentiality agreement because he wants to keep his you know, severance and he wants to keep his health care for the sake of his family. And so he's not allowed to blow the whistle, right? He's He has signed away those rights as far as he understands. And a lot of the, the film gets its power from watching Al Pacino, uh, Lil Bergman, um, try to draw him out and convince him to come forward anyway. 
Um, that's the first part. And then there's this tortuous interference issue, the second part that provides the drama in the second half of over whether or not CBS is actually going to air this. Um, what's kind of interesting about just the, 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 the first half, the, non, the, the question of whether or not he can testify or go to the press um, despite this confidentiality agreement, is that it was kind of an unsettled legal issue at the time. It turns out there was a bunch of this going on. Um, there were like some historic cases involving, as I discovered, pouring through old law review articles. There were some historic cases involving GM trying to shut up a whistleblower who wanted to testify as an expert in product liability cases and are sort of similar circumstances. Um, Bergman's case was also a very interesting one. The movie has this whole thing about how he, how a Kentucky court said he couldn't talk, but then it was a question of whether he could talk elsewhere. And what I think is kind of important to know about these is that there's a lot of you know what, what the courts have kind of found generally is actually companies can't really use these, at least to shut people up in official forums. Like you can't really mm -hmm. use them to stop people from going to the FDA, which in real life Bergman did, um, or from testifying under a deposition in court. Um, a lot of the time, if you're going to have a confidentiality agreement, it has to be kind of narrow. Um, but you could still use the threat of it that you're going to ruin the person. Before we leave that that's that side of things behind and move on to tortious interference. Um, this there there is this subplot in the movie where they're talking about where Bergman and Wallace and um, what's his face the other the other big producer guy at, at, at sixty uh, Don minutes Don Hewitt yeah. Don Hewitt there you go um, where they are talking about. Um, how do we actually air this, given the fact that he signed the confidentiality agreement? And the, Bergman comes up with this idea of, well, he's still allowed to give a deposition in court. And once he has given the deposition in court, then what we can do is report on the court proceedings, which are then public, and something, something, therefore we can publish, that therefore we can air and an interview with him and it's like it it's it they they kind of make it seem as though they push him into making this deposition just for the sake of being able to air the interview yeah and i mean the the idea that he that once if he gives a public deposition that then he's free to go on cbs that's actually not wrong like that's i think that 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 may have been true to life too um there's like this concept called like once you're the barn door once the barn door is opened you know something isn't covered by a confidentiality agreement anymore oh it's um, like the, it's like the embargoes we sign and, and then suddenly like yeah. so and so has broken the embargo so we can ignore it too right and like part of what ended up happening with the wall street journal article um that it like again is that they published a bunch of the deposition like a lot of <laughs> like that wall street journal article ended up helping um cbs run its segment too because just the information started coming out um, in real life. So that's and so part CBS of, ultimately ran the interview under the barn door theory of the law. I think partly also just like they were kind of humiliated. But so the tortious interference thing, though, is what, what's intriguing about that is, you know, on the one hand, like it there, it's, you know, they're depicted as like really craven. Um, and they're sort of like covering up because the real issue is that they actually just don't want a lawsuit that's going to interfere with the sale of the company, which was, again, this is actually all fairly true to some of the things that were discussed. But the, the thing they don't mention is that actually this was a tactic Big Tobacco was already using on other companies. They like went after ABC with a $10 billion lawsuit 
for under similar circumstances. Was was that uh, the pink slime one? I uh, no no no. It was also it was uh, it was a tobacco lawsuit against okay. the ABC. So this was something like this was the legal tactic. You know that the tobacco companies were were replicating every time they were facing something like this. They, they it's not like it, w- it wasn't the first time it had come up. I'm not a I'm not a litigator, so <laughs> I, I don't know how it would have turned out in court. But it's it, this was kind of this is what journalists were dealing with at the time. I think it's worth pointing out that this is still a, a thing that companies like to wield against news organizations. Uh, but as the Pacino character points out in the movie. He says something like, well, you know, if it's legally a problem to get people to speak against the interest of their former employer employers, then, you know, that pretty much permits us or prevents us from talking to any sources because we're in the business of having people <laughs> give us information that their former employers don't want them to. Well, so this is, yeah, this is one of the you know, great self-righteous speeches of Lyle Bergman, of which there are many in this movie, um, but it's possibly in, in the top, you know, five in, in terms of sheer self-righteousness. And, you know, it did run me a little bit the wrong way for, for, for a couple of different reasons. Um, but, you know, not least the fact that, like, there's more to journalism than investigations, but the core nub of it, which is... Um, one of the things that investigative journalists do is get people to reveal secrets that they're not supposed to reveal for you know some reason or another um, is undoubtedly true and has undoubtedly become criminalized. I don't know like if it's sort of a criminal or some other kind of li- like just civil liability, but it's definitely sort of illegal um under this doctrine of tortious interference. And I can tell you, as a journalist who is, you know, working in 2023, we have lawyers coming into our organization and saying, you know, do not ask your sources to hand over confidential information or to break confidentiality agreements because that is tortious interference and we can get, you know, sued for that. Like, if they just wake up one morning and decide to hand you something... That's fucking great, but don't ask them to do it. And that is something that lawyers 100% are saying to journalists right now and I think is a thing that they have been saying to journalists since about the late 90s and that they never used to say to journalists, you know, back in the days of the Pentagon Papers or whatever. There is one more scene that I, I sort of thought was there for dramatic purposes, but but also kind of made me laugh, which is the scene where Bergman is on the phone to a journalist at the Times who's played by real-life journalist Pete Hamill. And he says, okay, you know, I, I, he wants to be able to tell Hamill something that could obviously get him in trouble if he actually discloses it, maybe under the same basis that, you know, we're talking about tortious interference or something related. But he is on the phone with Hamill And he says, okay, here's how we're going to do this. You're going to say something or speculate. And then if you're wrong, I'll tell you you're wrong. And then if you're correct, I'm just not going to say anything. So you have this sort of little dramatic moment where Hamill says, you know, is this about X? And then Pacino is very quiet. And then he says, well, is it? And Hamill sort of constructs the entire story with Pacino, again, on the phone, but not saying anything as a form of confirmation 
I mean, it's it's the dumbest possible way of like trying to do some Clintonian thing of like I didn't tell him X. Like, I mean, everyone knew that Bergman was the source of that New York Times um, article, and he never denied it. And like the fact, and whether or not he, you know, words came out of his mouth to that effect. Like, who cares? No one cares. Uh, can you imagine how long it would take to actually interview someone that way? Like, just playing, tw- <laughs> like, the actual process of, like, 20 questions. You're just like, and if you get something wrong, you then have to go back and figure it out. Like, oh, God. Well, also, just- what do you tell the lawyers and the fact checkers when they say, um, okay, where's your transcript or your notes from this conversation? It's like, what would your notes be? Like, source says <laughs> nothing the entire time. <laughs> Quiet as a mouse. Um, yeah, just brutal. I just, I can't, I, that's not, that's not feasible. Not at all. We need to take a quick ad break, but after this, we are going to talk about all of the many conflicts of interest in the movie and not in the movie. One interesting thing about this movie is that it actually underplayed some of like the potential corporate conflicts of interests. Like there were so many in real life that they actually had to like kind of narrow them down. <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> kind of amazing. Like to, for, they actually had to make it less messed up for dramatic effect. Um, and like again in the movie, the the thing is that they 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 reveal that CBS is in the or that the the owner of CBS is thinking about selling it, and it doesn't want this lawsuit to scuttle the deal. Which again was made a big time. Like there was a lot of speculation about that at the time. What I didn't know is that um, Larry Tish, who owned CBS at the time or was like that chair of the board, um, also owned a tobacco company. Like he was also like their part of his fortune came from Lorillard Tobacco. And so like (laughs) there was a whole other like layer of conflicts of interest here that were going on in the background that I just I couldn't like I like I'm sort of amazed that didn't even get a nod in the film. This is, again, something that continues to be a big issue to this day, which is the the question of what happens when a large for profit company with a bunch of non-journalistic financial and fiduciary interests owns a news organization. Because by the nature of news organizations, they're inevitably going to do things that the parent company gets upset about from time to time. The immediate news hook here is that Apple has canceled Jon Stewart's TV show um, reportedly because Jon Stewart wanted to talk about China and Apple didn't want Jon Stewart to talk about China. There is a big issue which exists to this day of like when the news becomes corporate and, and and highly profitable and the kind of thing that big corporations like Westinghouse and Disney want to own, that brings with it a bunch of inevitable conflicts. That's what makes this story so remarkable to me. Um, big tobacco, I mean, that big was big. And, you know, Jordan was saying before, this isn't the first time they were suing a media outlet. They had successfully fended off lawsuits for years and years and years where people tried to go after them for killing Americans. I mean, they these, these were companies selling products that killed like a half a million Americans every year. And they got, they had enormous power. And it's it's inconceivable to me that in today's political and media climate, there could be the same kind of victory over these big tobacco companies that there was in the 90s. I mean, you had what, like 48 attorneys general 
um, eventually sue the tobacco companies. And at the same time as there was, you know, more political will, there was an actual powerful media arm. 60 Minutes, like you said before, had huge viewership, million, tens of millions of people um, and real power inside of CBS. There's no equivalent now. There's no media outlet, I would argue, that has the same kind of power that CBS did at that 60 Minutes did at that time. I mean, Sunday Night Football would end and then the whole country would watch a news magazine show. Like, it's just inconceivable. There, there's no single outlet, but I do think we've seen a similar kind of consensus develop as a result of more media coverage around the opioid crisis in the Sacklers and Purdue. Yeah, maybe, maybe around Purdue. But I just, it's a, such a stunning thing that Big Tobacco was so powerful, their litigation strategy so successful. And then, you know, finally there was this huge push and these documents come out and show these companies have known for a really long time that they were pushing an addictive, deadly product and they were making it purposefully more, even more addictive, you know, and just had been flat out lying about it for years. Yeah, the thing that, that astonishes in this movie, and the movie was made very shortly after the events it depicts, right? The events were like, mm -hmm. what, Jordan, get, correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, but like 94, 95, and the movie comes out in 99. Um, but yeah, the... Hearing is in 94, which is not that long ago and was really very, very recent for anyone who was watching the movie. And as late as 1994, you can get all of these tobacco CEOs lined up in front of Congress and one after the other repeating, I do not believe that nicotine is addictive. I do not believe that nicotine is addictive. Like the, the, something that any six-year-old knows is true. They're just flatly denying Right. There's also that great speech by Weigand where it's not really, I guess, a speech, but he talks about having worked for Johnson & Johnson and the CEO, who was the CEO during the um, Tylenol poisoning episode. And he says, you know, that guy knew immediately that they would be in trouble if the, even the perception that the product was bad for people would, would be just devastating to the company, but also that the guy had a conscience and didn't want to hurt people. So they immediately came out with this safety cap for... Uh, bottles of Tylenol. And he said, and the difference between that and the tobacco CEOs is that the tobacco CEOs have, you know, no concern whatsoever about the fact that their product hurts people. They're just total nihilists about it and they just get up and lie. And they, they spend that. so much money on lawyering their way around these lies, you know. But that's because, I mean, Tylenol, I thought about this and it's like kind of unfair because Tylenol is selling products like health and wellness products meant to make people healthier and more well. And the <laughs> tobacco industry is selling cigarettes. Like there's no real purpose for a cigarette. You know what I mean? Like they can't. Yeah, I guess that's true. They can't plausibly suggest that the product is good for people. Yeah. Although I think they tried for a while. Yeah. That actually, you know, a little bit like uh, a couple of those Al Pacino speeches did smell a little bit of, you know, Michael Mann rhetorical righteousness in a way that I felt was not great for the movie. Like, we don't need this movie to have black hats and white hats, right? We don't need for this to be a good versus evil story oh, yeah, of, you like, do. you know, yeah, you, the heroic yeah, you Al Pacino against the evil tobacco CEOs. Because for me, like, you know, and getting into, like, the the actual drama and the acting of it, for me, the core of the movie and the most interesting part of the movie and the most lasting part of the movie 
is really the performance of Russell Crowe as Jeffrey Wigand as this very complex, not particularly sympathetic character who is far from heroic and who shows that shit gets fucked up in all manner of ways and he winds up basically destroying his life by doing a bunch of stuff that, you know, doesn't make him feel very good. And then, you know, he gets betrayed by CBS who don't add the interview and he's stuck in the hotel room and he's lost his marriage. And yeah, and and all of this, um, that this kind of complexity is the part of the movie that I thought worked the best. And in ter- like, I think both Russell Crowe and Al Pacino give absolutely amazing performances in this movie, possibly the best of their careers. But the the character that Russell Crowe plays is just a vastly more interesting character than the relatively one-dimensional character that Al Pacino plays. Yeah, he's not very likable, the Wigan. Russell Crowe is Wigan. Right, I, no, I it's not think. at all. Or yeah. sympathetic, like he took this job making $300,000 a year uh, for this tobacco company in 1989. That's like almost, that's like over $750,000 a year today. He admits he did it for the money. He took a job at a tobacco company to do health and safety research, which is like that you're, you've sold out, man. You've sold out. Um, and they try to pin that on his wife or something, which I didn't I like. I think on his movie. daughter who has asthma. He says he needs mm-hmm. the the money yeah. because she's... But, like, he could have gotten a job for yeah, $200,000 yeah, but, but that, but, or No, but the point... <laughs> but you're right. He is not a sympathetic character and he's no. not meant to be. And that's what makes the movie good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's an anti-hero. Like, you know, just to, you know... It's him. He's the problem. It's him. No, um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> um, but, no, he is. And, you know, again, I, I think that is what makes the movie interesting. It made more than a pure black hats mm-hmm. and white hats film. The fact that like one of the white hats is this guy who made some horrible life decisions and, um, but, and then kind of tries to cautiously and, and hesitantly try, uh, decides to redeem himself. Um, but at the same time, like the tobacco companies were really, really were I mean they were black hats. I mean they yeah. were hiding. That's the thing about this. Like none, nothing that, no, nothing that this movie depicts about the tobacco companies is made up. Like the yeah. the right. the smear campaign, the the hardball litigation tactics, the hiding information, the hiding science that they that they knew about the the addictiveness of their product. Um, that's all real. Like that's you know they, they actually weren't amping. You know he gives some no no that that is true. Speeches, um, but it's and- just like. You know, maybe they could have toned down the rhetoric a little bit, but like the fundamental dynamics of the story are not. You know, Michael Mann's not making that up. That's no, all, no. I'm not. I'm not saying yeah. anything's made up, but I'm. But there is yeah. this. I, I just think, uh, in terms of the the dynamics of the screenplay and the acting and what we see on screen. Yeah. Um, one thing we have to say is just the acting throughout this movie is. Absolutely amazing. Christopher Plummer is incredible as Mike Wallace. Michael I Gambon, thought he was Mike Wallace. I yeah, was like, wait, Mike remarkable. Wallace played himself? No, the like, cadence yeah. of his voice was <laughs> identical to Wallace's. Yeah. I, also, I, I gotta say, also, I feel, I feel 
I felt for the female actresses in in the movie because they're all given like as always with Michael Mann, they're just given the most paper thin roles on mm-hmm. pay, on the page, and they just have to do whatever they can with it. Like because he just does not. He there is nobody who writes women worse, like compared to how well he writes men. I think than Michael Mann maybe, and like Gina Gerson <laughs> is like trying to like okay, I'm just going to show up and try to make this part sing. Um, and the wife is trying to be more than just like a one dimensional kind of. The wife is a, a terrible way. character, and and yeah. like and that is a, a genuine weakness of the screenplay yeah that you know this is a woman who's married to this guy and just has no sympathy for him whatsoever and the minute he says like i just lost my job her you know her first reaction is this sort of selfish well what about me that's terrible how dare you lose your job and you're like come on like Apparently, it's worse because in, re- in real life, apparently, there was some domestic abuse, too, that, like, the Vanity Fair article about all this gets into, that, like, one night he just wailed on her. Um, and that was part of what led to the dissolution of their marriage. Um, so, like, when you know that, it actually makes the screenplay even a little bit more unforgivable in that respect. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, like, that he was actually, in some ways, even less likable in real life <laughs> than, than what, get, like, and, you know, he's even more of an anti-hero, if you want to put it that way. But the acting is fantastic overall. But in terms of, yeah, the black hats, the guy who has like two minutes of screen time in the entire movie, but is just, but steals the scene, is Michael Gambon as the CEO of Ronald Williamson with this amazing, like, honeyed Southern accent. Um, and yeah, he's he's sort of pure evil and clearly the guy that everyone wants to bring down and no one has any sympathy for him, but... Just in those two minutes, by sheer force of acting, he does create this sort of really compelling character. Yeah, he, he just exudes malevolence in, in like 30 <laughs> seconds. And mm-hmm. I love Pacino as the put-upon producer. Because I think, it, you know, those of us who who worked in journalism, we know the frustration of having, you know, a boss suggest that they're going to screw over a source or, you know, we're not going to run this story because it's too risky. And every time Pacino does his uh, very characteristic Val Pacino, like, ah, you know, roaring kind of <laughs> frustration at things. I felt like just a twinge of sympathy. Yeah. What, it's so one funny of- to me, the stakes for these people, and that, like, we're meant to, Jeffrey Wigand could have to get a lower paying job and <laughs> lose his big house with a very green lawn. Like the stakes for him are kind of ridiculous. And like when Al Pacino gets in trouble and and I think it's Don Hewitt tells him to like, you know, take some time off or whatever, go away. And this is like a very low point in his career. He is then exiled to some like beautiful beach location <laughs> resort with his wife. It's like the stakes were life and death because cigarettes killed people. But for the the people in this movie, it's it, it's the world of like, you know, it's the world of men who make lots of money and they're all going to be okay, really. Well, he was getting like bullets put in his mailbox too. Like that is uh, that's <laughs> that's the, the that whole is like fair. threatening your family's life part is also true. a sort of important subplot there, um, <laughs> which again, also apparently real. Like the bullet in the mailbox really happened. I was shocked. I thought that had to be made up, but no, that actually was apparently a lot like, so this is what from that article, New York Mag, one thing they mentioned is that they actually had to stick fairly close to reality because they themselves were worried about being sued. Like mm-hmm. it, because 
which one of the quirks of libel law or defamation is that if you know you're writing fiction about somebody that in some way, and it's an identifiable character that in some ways makes it easier to bring a case because they can say in court, you were writing fiction about us, but you presented it in such a way that someone could mistake it for fact. So they, they kind of had to hew pretty close to the actual events that unfolded um, to avoid uh, their own gigantic uh, you know judgment against them. But doesn't that all get taken care of in the disclaimer that those movies usually have that say oh, based on the based, true story? Based no, on like real events. Yeah, you like, can't. The disclaimers like, don't work. If there's one thing I know about law, <laughs> yeah, it's it's that like you know, saying like this is not investment advice. Like, doesn't actually help you. At all. <laughs> now let me tell you what to buy. Like, exactly. <laughs> long, long on Bitcoin all the time, all day. Um. So yeah. Yeah, but uh, the, the, I don't know. I think I, I do. I do feel for the guy for having had to deal with the occasional death threats. That yes. seems like those are some those are some stakes. Fair, but overall, I'm still sticking with the stakes weren't that high for any of these actual people. In in, ter in terms of in terms of um, Al Pacino scenery chewing, I'm gonna <laughs> like he he's coming <laughs> off heat at this point, right? Yeah, Michael Mann and Al Pacino make heat. And then the insider, pretty much back to back, and on a scale of one to heat, Al Pacino chews almost no scenery in this movie. Like he definitely chews more scenery than anyone else in the movie, with the possible exception of the you know lawyer in the deposition. But he does a really good acting job, and he has this reputation of being one of the finest actors of his generation. But like I, I do think that this is arguably his best film he does manage to keep it toned down at least by pacino standards for most of the movie well i have a question for you i very much enjoy his acting in this movie but do you like the scenery chewing in heat because i for one <laughs> i for one revel in it <laughs> like, that's, like i can't tell if like i mean it's it's a different flavor of pacino but like or a different it's a different gear of pacino but like I think you know there there a few moments you know watching him and uh, him and De Niro go to toe to toe is like a, a one of one of history's great cinematic pleasures. It, in it, my no, I mean I'm not I I do love Heat. It's a great yeah. movie and and it wouldn't be as great of a movie if it weren't for the scenery chewing by Al Pacino, who is like again like in both movies he's the he's the white hat right you know he's the good yeah. guy, and the way that you make this very clean you know, white hat good guy interesting is by giving him the, you know, Al Pacino intensity. The other person who makes this big transformation, much bigger transformation, of course, is Russell Crowe, who comes straight off of The Insider, where he plays a 50-something pudgy white guy to make Gladiator within like a year. Yeah, good job on him. That was, <laughs> I'm impressed by this. And he really looks, in this movie, in The Insider, he looks he looks like Jeffrey Wigand because I went back and watched that 60 Minutes interview and it's actually pretty insane how much Russell Crowe manages to look like this very pudgy 50-year-old former executive dude. Like, it's weird um, what, that he could go from that to Gladiator is impressive. What One of the things I liked about his performance, and I don't know if it was a choice or just how it kind of worked out, is, is how he handled the accent. Because Wigand mm -hmm. had this very distinct Bronx accent. Like, mm -hmm. it just like, you hear it. And, and in real life, he has it, but Russell Crowe kind of amps it up. And it gives you this sense of him immediately as the other 
in this yeah. world of Southern tobacco, when he's sitting across from, you know, the CEO of Brown and Williamson, especially, you get the sense of like, oh, this guy has like been transported into an office with like Satan himself, right? And like, <laughs> he's this poor, he's this poor lost soul who speak like, who talks like he's from the boroughs, you know, it's, and I like that, it kind of sets him apart from everyone he's around. It makes him feel like even more of an island. And I really liked the, the way that that worked. And just the, the, again, I don't know if he was choosing to kind of, make it pop a little bit more, but I thought it, it it served the movie. Everyone is so compelling to watch in the movie because when I, when I, you know, went to stream this thing and I saw it's like, what is it, like two hours and 40 minutes or something long and it's like going to be mostly men kind of talking to each other. I was like, oh my God, like I, <laughs> yeah. what what have I done to myself? Um, <laughs> what has Jordan Weissman done to me? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's... it's so compelling. Watching Al Pacino is genuinely interesting and compelling and you can't look away. I mean, everyone is just so entertaining. It's kind of striking to me. Um, I, I just, this movie couldn't have, this business story never would happen in 2023, I don't think. And this movie couldn't have gotten made in 2023. It would be much more boring somehow. The, the movie was a high budget movie that flopped on a financial level. Um, everyone who watched it loved it, but for reasons you have just limbed, no one wanted to watch it, and <laughs> right. so no one did. Um, and and it and also it was 1999, and there were eight million absolutely amazing movies coming out every week, and so it just kind of got lost in the shovel. It got nominated for seven Oscars. I don't think it won any of them. Um, but yeah, the the movie lovers love it, and movie goers kind of didn't notice or didn't care. Um, so. You know, I guess that's part of what happens when you put out a great movie in 99. But now you're absolutely right. Like, it's impossible to get that kind of budget for, you know, a movie about men talking to each other. It just it just doesn't happen anymore. You need to have everything needs to be based on you know some you know, IP in order to get that budget these days. It has to be like Captain America taking down big tobacco. Well, actually, you know what it would be these days? This That story these days would become a TV series. It would become like an mm, eight-part yeah. TV series and it would yes. be even longer and you'd be like, couldn't this just be a movie? Yeah, yes. I mean, th that, that's what they did. And that, that's what they did essentially with, I think there have to been multiple series about the Purdue Pharma scandal now. Like yes. there, have been, yeah. there have been documentaries and there have been dramas, but the, the entire opioids crisis has, has mostly been handled through... Uh, you know, prestige TV dramas, which is why I've never seen any of them because uh, I because the don't time have... commitment is even longer than the insider, extremely long. And I have a toddler that is constantly screaming for me, so that is just not on the to do to do list. Elizabeth, mm -hmm. give us a letter grade. What? How did you? How do you rank this movie? I love the insider. I, I give it an A. I like Michael Mann movies generally. So, uh, Emily. I, yeah, I'm going to give it an A minus. The minus is for the woman stuff that kind of offends me a little bit. So it took away a smidge of my enjoyment. But I mean, I really, really like this movie. I I thought I was going to have to watch it in chunks. I thought I was going to have to chunkify it because it was so long. <laughs> I watched, I was tired when I put it on. I was like, there's no way I'm going to stay awake for this thing. And I could not look away. It was so compelling. And it just got me thinking so much about big tobacco and the battle against big tobacco and could anything rival that? And I think the opioid example is really good. Um, 
and like, why hasn't this happened to other industries and just like what happened to the media? Anyway, I really liked it. A minus. I, I'm going to give it a B plus. I, I think it's beautifully shot, amazingly well acted, unbelievably self-indulgent, <laughs> mildly oversimplistic, uh, and kind of pales in comparison to a couple of other 1999 movies that I love much more, but still a good movie and still well worth watching. Um, but Jordan, you're the one who brought us this thing. What's, what's your verdict? Yeah, I, I also give it an A while acknowledging the flaws. Um, you know, if you think of Michael Mann movies sort of as a genre unto themselves that are going to bring a certain set of quirks, including sadly thinly drawn female characters and a sometimes um, sometimes distracting smooth jazz soundtrack. Um, yes. yes, thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> like, like these are all part of the Michael Mann experience, though. And so, just like you know, you know, you go to the opera, you know, you're going to get some arias like that. That's kind of why you're going. So <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised by like massive yeah. attack over the closing credits. Yeah. Though I was yeah, like, "Ooh, there you go." Yeah, that was that was very '90s. Um, but like the, um, but yeah, I I got to give it an A, and even more so because I think it is actually this sort of um, you know a pa- you, you kind of pair it with Heat as like sort of the two very similar movies on very different themes. Um, that you really enjoy them together too. So yeah, I give it an A. And also it's, you know, great for learning about tortious interference. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, like in, in, in The Insider, you learn about tortious interference. In, the, in Heat, you learn about how to conduct a 20-minute gun battle on the streets of Los Angeles. It's basically the same. <laughs> it's a how-to manual, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Jordan, thank you so much for coming back. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you for um, having me. And I guess everyone should subscribe to the Semaphore Washington newsletter. <laughs> it's called. <laughs> it's called. Um, yeah, no, it's Semaphore Principles. Uh, if you if you want like a nice daily digest with a, with a little bit of nitty gritty thrown in of what's happening in Washington. So uh, but yeah, please sign up and uh, read. And hopefully, I'll be back here at some point to talk about. Yes. Yeah, whatever. We'll have you back when we need to talk about politics. (laughs) Yeah, when you're absolutely obligated. 